Exodus chapter 15. This is the song of Moses and Israel immediately following the deliverance from Egypt and in particular the drowning of the Egyptian army. So it's in a sense, it's the first time since the beginning of the plagues that they can breathe easy. They, they are now safe and they sing to the Lord. So let's start in verse 1 of Exodus 15. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. And the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence... You overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand will destroy them. You, God, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord. Until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Well, let's pray. Our everlasting God, when we read the words of Moses and Israel, we, our hearts immediately agree. But we don't look back to Egypt and a Red Sea, but we think of the slavery of our sin in our souls, the slavery of every person, we have ever known we were born into it and we agreed with it, God. But you in your great kindness, 
You have planned to exalt your name, even from eternity past. It has always been your great intention, your determination to show your greatness by rescuing a people which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and nation to be gathered around the throne of your son, our kinsman redeemer. God, we thank you that you have involved us in your kingdom and have called us to serve you and brought us out of the emptiness of living for us. We thank you that you have taken us out of the, out of the courtroom and brought us into the living room, that you have united us to Jesus of Nazareth, every Christian, by faith, placed into Christ, the one place where wrath can never reach. And we want to turn our thankful hearts to you. God, what Moses says about you here, what Israel sings, it's all true. But so much more could be said by the most common, weak, struggling Christian. God, your right hand has shattered our enemy. Your right hand, the God-man, possessing all that there is of the divine nature equally and eternally with the Father and the Spirit. Your Son has taken our nature. And God, He has become the curse so that we might be brought to You in peace. You know how tempted we are to take sin lightly. And then, having sinned, how tempted we are to despair and to think that our sin is too great a matter for you, even you, to deal with. So God, we want to lay both types of pride in the dust. And we come to you. And we ask God, turn your face toward us. And let there be a sweet meeting between our souls and you. And we ask it not just for this little gathering here. But God, your people from east to west and north to south, those who have already met and worshipped and those who are preparing even now, would you meet them? God, the things that were said or will be said, would you cause them to be treasured in their hearts and not lazily left alone until the distractions of this world come and peck them away or strangle them? We don't want to have stony hearts that only have a shallow response. We, we don't want to have hearts that eagerly embrace what you say and then the cares of life, the everyday stuff, the things that have their own importance but are nothing compared to the eternal matters and they just crowd you out. So Father, we come to you and we ask, you are the infinitely wise and infinitely holy, and infinitely powerful, and infinitely, shockingly kind God. So continue your great work. Spread the kingdom of Christ. Exalt his name in a way that throws every other option that's offered to people down in the dirt so that only he would be loved. And we ask that you would do this in our places, our towns, our homes and workplaces. And here this morning, 
In Christ's name, amen. We've been looking at the theme of following Christ for many months now, and we have been leading up to following Jesus not only in his teachings, but in his pattern or in his example. And for that, we have to be sure, to be clear as believers, that it will require that like your Lord, you set your face like flint. To quote the prophet Isaiah, to set your face like flint, determined to do all that pleases the Lord, to put away all that grieves your king, not to rebel, as Isaiah says, the Messiah, he will not rebel, and not to sidestep, not to kind of quietly pretend that we didn't hear what God says. So, you know, it's not the open rebellion against God. It's just the, uh, just the passive refusal to allow the commands of God to pass us by and for us not to earnestly do them. Anything less than obedience as our goal is not the Christian life. You cannot follow Jesus of Nazareth and set your feet willingly on a path of disobedience where you use grace as a cloak to you know, cover the ugliness of continuing to live for yourself, not loving God, not loving other people. Now, when we talk about that, I want to be clear that we're not saying that obeying the commands of God are some way of, you know, they're the, they're the way you bribe God. So payments, they're not the way that you keep God loving you, but they are the response of a converted, saved, all right, newborn person who God has written the law on their heart now. So it's not just some kind of, um, you know, restraint that God puts on the outside of you to keep you from doing what you wish you could do. But now from within, imperfectly, but really, there is a love that wants to express itself for its new king in obedience. If we accept a Christianity that does not include following the pattern of Christ, then we really couldn't say it's the New Testament type of Christianity. And if following Christ and his pattern doesn't include obedience to the moral law of God, what God fundamentally says he delights in or what he fundamentally uh, is uh, opposed to, then what we end up with is kind of the religion that Jesus talked about in Luke 6, where he says to the crowds, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And then he gives them this explanation. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard 
and not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. So with Christ's own words, it's pretty clear that making sure that we are both hearers and doers of God's word, it is of immense importance to everyone here, to everyone on our planet. So how are we to approach the moral commands of God? Does it matter how you approach them? Isn't it just enough to do them? Say, well, I I do obey God. I'm a Christian. And by the grace of God, I do what he tells me to do. Is that enough? And I think the answer is no. It's not enough to merely start with, okay, what does a Christian do? So I'll do those things. There is an, an approach. There is a right way to understand the commands of God. And it matters how you approach those things. And for that, let me give you one example. And that is from Exodus chapter 20, which I forgot to read to you before. I do feel like I'm in like three time zones at once right now. So forgive my extra disorganized brain. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses on Mount Sinai receives the Ten Commandments. And we'll be talking about these in the coming days. The Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law. The moral law is different than the ceremonial law or the civil laws of Israel in one way, in the fact that that it is a permanent expression that is immutable or unchangeable. It's the only part of the law that was actually carved into stones. When we read the civil law, we have a lot of expressions of the moral law. So if you take this moral law, the perfection of God's character, what he loves and what he hates, and then you apply it in this kind of context, what would it look like? And so there are so many helpful applications there, are you know, precise expressions of the summary. But the Ten Commandments are just the summary. It's not all that there is to the life of a believer, Old Testament or New Testament. But when we come to the book of Exodus in chapter 20, and God finally chooses to spell out this law for the people as he's rescued them from Egypt and he's establishing them as a nation. Notice the opening lines. Exodus 20 verse 1. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have No other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands or to the thousandth generation. To those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So the Ten Commandments. But as we read them, notice the introduction. God spoke all these words saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, this is the passage we're going to be thinking about this morning because it is so significant that we have the right approach. Having the right approach to the Ten Commandments or the moral law of God, the unchanging expression of what's right in every generation or what's wrong in every generation, it's not enough. It's not as if, you know, once our hearts, you know, are kind of um, moved with the thought of the right approach, encouraged, and once our minds understand the concept of the right approach, well, that's not the end. That's just the gate. We walk through this gate. We walk through an entrance that God himself has given and we approach his moral law. The law of the one holy being who is holy because he is who he is. How do we do that? Well, first of all, I want you to notice the strange reality of grace that is maybe behind the scenes. Maybe you haven't stopped and thought about it. But it's, it's in this reasoning that God gives. Have you ever noticed how often God stops and before he gives a command, he gives a reason? So he explains what he wants us to do. But before he explains what he wants you to do, he explains why he wants you to do it. And have you considered that in laying reasons before you, Laying arguments before you, promises, warnings, explanations. That in all of this, God is being so gracious to us. Why would a God who is eternal, why would the I am, who fills every place at once and calls, you know, to quote the old writers, he calls every place here and every time now, filling all places, all times, overflowing, every boundary, every measurement we invent with our mind, our, our, our furthest stretch of our imagination, and God pours over the edge, the infinite and incomprehensible God, who in every aspect of his character is perfect. The majesty on high stoops down to you. You are, a, you are an animated ball of dirt. You are carbon and your life 
has a little start on the line of human history. There's a little blip. There's 1969, you know, April 2nd, John Snyder is born. And then there'll be a little blip. John Snyder dies, no longer here. And, you know, people won't remember. And God stoops down to such insignificant creatures and lays arguments before you so that you will not destroy yourself but walk the happiest path. Not just for your good, but for his glory. Why would a king lay promises and warnings and reasons and explanations before those who fought against him and he has forgiven them and they're brought into his kingdom, why would he then take the time to explain why they should obey his laws? Isn't it evident? It is an extraordinary expression of grace that God stops and says things like he does in Isaiah 1, let us reason together. I mean, you know, I, I remember as a kid thinking, my parents weren't very reasonable. Sometimes they just told me what to do. But I was watching television and the Brady Bunch parents, they were very reasonable. They, they, they had these long discussions with their kids. And in the end, they always agreed with the kid. And I would say to my parents, why aren't you more like them? And they would like click the TV off. Nope, that's enough of that. I, I, why do you just tell me what to do? Well, we're your parents. And sometimes they would just say, this is just the way it is. I'm your mom or I'm your dad. Why would God stoop to people who have strutted all their life? I hope we never lose the amazement and the shock that the uncreated creator of everything has turned toward every one of us in kindness, whether you're a believer or not, and has reasoned with you. So I want us to ask an honest question before we go further. If we can answer it well now, maybe that will prepare you to answer it in the future because you may have to answer it then at the judgment. If you read through the Bible and kind of skim over the reasons, the arguments that God gives why you should obey, and you are kind of indifferent to what he says you're supposed to do, how will you on that day of judgment, how will you justify your indifference to his reasonings? I mean, you're going to have to give an answer for ignoring his commands, but I'm not asking that. I'm asking if you ignore his reasons. Not just his commands. How will you plead? Any, any, how, how will you justify? How will you give any evidence to God who knows you thoroughly that would suddenly satisfy him as the judge where he would say, well, that makes sense. I understand why you paid no attention to my pleadings and reasonings and my arguments that I laid in front of you. You may argue that God doesn't have a right to command you. You may spend your entire life, and there is no better place to spend it like this than religion, okay? You are in the perfect place to do this. 
You can spend your entire life using phrases of the Bible to create loopholes in your thoughts, to create loopholes for you. So you can explain why actually God doesn't expect you to do what he said to do. But your loopholes and your arguments and your Bible phrases are going to have to pass the test of God. You're going to have to convince him, not just your conscience, not just the people around you. We do that all the time, and sometimes when we're not being careful, the Christian joins right in with it. Someone says, well, I know that this might not be best, but my life is hard, you don't understand, and in this situation, I just kind of had to do what wasn't the best. And we say, oh, I understand. And then later we think, why did I say that? Why didn't I stop and say, no, no, don't walk down that path. It goes against God. Can you not trust the Lord to give you everything you need to obey, even in this? But you may convince everyone around you. You may convince your parents. You may convince your friends. You could convince your spouse. You could convince your church. But that's not going to be enough. You're going to have to have an answer to God. Why did you not obey? Why did you not listen to my reasons? What are the reasons that God gives here? Well, in the opening line of the Ten Commandments, God gives them reasons. Now, we could say there's the reasons that come from the big picture, the greater context, and then there's the reasons that come from the specific context of the passage. And I want to talk about both of them, so let me just mention, in the big context, the timing, why is it that God has, at this point in time, given them the summary of his moral law, the Ten Commandments. Why not before? And one of the things that jumps out at us if we're paying attention is that God gives them his law after having brought them to himself in a relationship based on his faithfulness. And so the law is not a bribe that Israel will offer to God so that God will make them his people. The law is not a ladder that Israel will use now to climb up to God. The law is not a way that Israel will get God's attention and say, God, of all the nations, at least we kept your rules. And so since we kept your rules, would you get us out from underneath this 430 years of Egyptian slavery? It's exactly the opposite. First, an astonishing work of mercy, and God rescues them. Then God says, you're my people. So being my people, this is how you're going to come to me, the sacrifices. This is how you will walk with me, the law. Don't get confused about the big picture. It is not law keeping first, then a relationship. It is the relationship, the covenant And flowing from that, the obedience. But what about the specific context of the passage? Well, I mentioned verse 2. Look at it again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall... And then there you have the commands. How do you understand verse 2? Two options. It does actually make quite a big difference. 
One option is verse 2 goes directly with verse 3. And so it's just explaining you're not to have any other God before him, before his face. Uh, Again, we'll talk about this in the coming days, but it's not saying you can have a lot of gods, but I have to be number one and then they have to be, you know, behind me. So they can't be in front of me. It's the idea of being in front of his face. You're not to have any God anywhere that I can see him. So you can't have any other God. So does verse 2 explain which God it is that you have to worship? Is he just saying this? I'm Jehovah. I'm the I am. I'm the one that rescued you. I'm the God of, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? Now, you've been in Egypt, and you've been surrounded by a lot of false gods, but I'm telling you who I am. Now, now that you know who I am, don't worship any other God. Well, perhaps. But I think that it, the context is clearly leaning a different way. And that is, verse 2 is an entrance. Okay, we have an entrance here at the, behind you. Those big double doors. It's the big double doors of the moral law. It's how we approach it. We walk through the double doors of God's kindness. The things he says in verse 2 are connected to all ten of his commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't worship another God. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't make me into some idol. Don't, don't fashion your idea of me and worship it. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. All right. Honor the Sabbath. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet or lust. Verse 2 is the entrance to all of them. If you skip verse 2 then you are doomed to misunderstand the whole nature of obedience. Think about two big ways to really blow it with regard to God's commands and obedience. One is what we would call legalism. Remember, legalism is just having a wrong understanding of the of the place of obedience. It's not, legalism is not obeying more than the person next to you. So the person next to you says, you're a legalist. So legalism doesn't describe how much or how little you obey. It describes why. The Pharisees, who are our, you know, chief example of coming to the law and being very, very serious about the law in a way, outwardly, And totally missing, just missing the entire boat when it comes to what obedience was. So they have a life of devotion and they travel the known world, Jesus says, to make converts to Judaism and to their type of Judaism. And in the end, he says, anybody that follows you, that hears your version of religion and embraces it, they have become twice the son or daughter of hell. That they were before. It was better off for them when they were worshiping, you know, trees and rocks and rivers. Now you've made them legalists. What's a legalist? A legalist is a person who approaches the law and keeps it outwardly for the wrong reasons. 
They try to use the law in a way that God has never meant for it to be used. It, it's really all about what they can get out of God. The other way to really blow it with regard to God's commands is to be, a, is to be an antinomian, an anti-law person, a libertine. Uh, a person that says, in modern language, well, if Jesus has obeyed the law, and if Christ has paid for every sin, past, present, and future then the only logical conclusion is obedience is completely optional. I mean, it's nice, but it's optional. And so the law, which is bad and angry, well, it's dealt with. We forget that Paul says, the law is good and it's holy. What was wrong between you and the law was you, not the law. A, a, an antinomian is a person that says being saved by the free grace of God means the law has nothing to say to me. Obedience is not part of the Christian life. At least not obedience in these specific ways. Now, do you notice that the Pharisee and the antinomian, that the strictest person in church today who has a wrong view of the law and the most self-indulgent person laying in bed right now saying, I'm saved by grace. I don't have to actually show up and worship God. That both those people failed at the same place. Where did they fail in the Ten Commandments? Was it, was it the first? Was it the second? Was it the eighth? It was in verse two. They failed all the others too, but where it started was verse two. The Pharisee and the antinomian don't pay attention to verse two. In other words, they don't walk through the right entrance. They don't understand what it's all about. So no matter how hard they try or no matter how they argue that they don't have to really obey, they've blown it. The fundamental things that God gives as reasons for obeying in verse 2 are universal. They apply to every, every period in time. It's not just old covenant stuff and we're in the new covenant. So let's look at the arguments that God places before us. Number one, he reminds the Israelites who it is that's commanding them. Well, it's God, obviously. I'm the Lord, your God. Well, so it's God. Yes. But Israel has forgotten what God is like. 430 years of Egyptian life. Most of them, the great majority of those, lived as slaves. And their idea of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has become pretty fuzzy. And if you need any evidence, you just keep reading in the book of Exodus. And you keep reading in Leviticus and Numbers. And you keep reading in Joshua and Judges. But Exodus is all you need. That generation of people rescued from Egypt. When they get a chance to worship God. But the preacher's gone. Moses is gone. So they go to the, to the other preacher, Aaron, and say, Let's make God in a form that we feel comfortable with. And they make a golden cow and they worship him. It. Israel needs to be reintroduced to God and so do we. 
Who is it that's commanding you? I mean, it makes all the difference in the world. If an angry toddler in the nursery is telling you what to do, do you jump up and do it? I hope you don't. If your angry toddler at home today pitches a fit and tells you what they want, do you jump up and do it? I hope you don't. Most of us don't. But if your employer tomorrow morning says, I want you to work on this, it's very, it's very important. If you want to keep your job, I really need you to do this. Then you listen in a totally different way. We know who God is. We know what the word God means, but it's easy to get fuzzy ideas and we need to be reintroduced. So he goes on to say more. I am the Lord, your God. L-O-R-D, the capitals. You know what that is. It is the Hebrew name for God. It is the name that God revealed himself to Moses with. It's the name that he sent Moses to back to Egypt. And he said, I'm going to send you back. You're going to bring my people out. You'll be my instrument. And Moses said, well, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? And he says, well, tell them the I am sent you. Capital L-O-R-D, all caps, is the way that we write what the Jews wrote, and that is just the consonants of that. Yahweh or Jehovah, we don't know how to pronounce it now. But it is the name that God gives that comes from the Hebrew word to be, which is why we say he is the I am. When God reveals himself as the I am, what does that imply? And does that change the way you approach obedience? I mean, we could just go down the pews. Does that, does that change anything about the way you read the Ten Commandments? Well, think of it. There is one God that calls himself the I am. What does it mean? He is the one who really exists. Every other God that they had been surrounded by in Egypt for four centuries that had infiltrated their hearts, that had kind of soaked into their thoughts, the God of frogs, the God of insects, the the God of the sun, the God of the Nile, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what names the Egyptians called them. They all have one name, really, the I am not. And then there is the I am. Every other God does not exist. One God does. In Isaiah 44, do you remember the verse? Is there any God besides me? He asks. Or is there any other rock? And then God gives the answer. Since we're ignorant, maybe there was one a long time ago before we were born. We just haven't heard of them. And God gives the answer, I know of none. He is the only existing God. He is the eternally existing God. He does not say, I am the I was, or I am the I will be. But he is always the I am, calling all times now. He is a timeless being. He's not just the ancient of days. He doesn't just live a really long time. He is with out time. He lives above time. He is the self-existing God. He doesn't say, tell them the 
I was made, sent you, but the I am. God owes his existence to no one. He is an unchanging God, immutable. He cannot be altered from without. He does not alter from within. In all of his perfections, he remains unaltered. I will be what I always have been is another way to translate that Hebrew word. Who is it that commands us? The I am or the one who will continue to be what he has always been. Who it is that commands us. Now, he adds one other thing. He tells them, I am the Lord, your God. He looks on Israel with jealousy, with tender ownership, with strong, you know, propriety. You are my people. Proprietary. I call you mine. You are my special possession, he says. And they can call him theirs. They can look on God and expect every good and beneficial thing to come from him. And they ought to offer him their very best. He is theirs and they are his. And that distinguishes them forever. So who it is that speaks? Second, what he's done to be able to be that God to them. Well, he says here, I rescued you from Egypt. God comes to a people in Egypt and he treats them as his friends and he takes them out. Like a father would remove his children from a from cruel situation. You remember that Israel goes to Egypt over four centuries earlier when Joseph has been has been placed there by God's providences. All those strange things that happened to Joseph that were all bad. God uses them all for good. Joseph is second in charge behind Pharaoh of Egypt. And Joseph's family is treated with favor because of Joseph. And they live there and the, and the Jews multiply. And Joseph dies. And Pharaoh that knows Joseph, he's dead. And the people that remember that relationship, they're dead. And in the next generation, the Egyptians look at these increasing Jews with suspicion. They're not us. And I don't think we should trust them. And so the answer that comes to their mind as the best way of handling all these Jews that keep increasing in their land is we should turn them into slave labor. And so they do. And for a total of 430 years, the Jews live there, much of that as slaves. It's not a normal slavery. It's so cruel that when the Jews continue to be blessed by God and Israel continues to increase, then Pharaoh makes a new rule and says every infant boy that is born in a Jewish home is to be drowned or killed with the sword. No sons are to live, just girls, so as to prevent the nation increasing. And it's not the kind of slavery and cruelty that lasts a year. But as I mentioned, they've been there 430 years. So let's say 400 of those. 400 of those as slaves. When you are a slave for a year, but you remember the days when you were not a slave. You remember freedom. Then it doesn't fashion your identity. But when you and your people are slaves for four centuries, 
so much longer than we've been a nation, then everything about you smells like a slave. The way the nations look at you. Every nation around Egypt and the Egyptians knew the Israelites as one thing. Those are the slave people. And it's the way Israel would have thought of itself. There's a young man falls in love with a young lady. Two Jews. They go. They have a wedding. It's the wedding of slaves. They build a house to move into so they can have their own place. It's a slave's house. There's a birth. Celebration. It's the birth of another slave. There's a funeral. The funeral of a slave. Everything about the Jews is, a, is, is the life of a slave. And the worst part of it is, as I mentioned, it's not just an external slavery, but the Egyptian gods, it seeps into their bloodstream. And they are enslaved on the inside, worshiping the emptiness that Egypt worshipped. But God is merciful. He says, I'm the one that rescued you. Listen to what he says in Exodus 2. It came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them, and he rescued them. But if you think about the rescue of Egypt, the rescue doesn't start in Exodus 2, does it? It starts back before that. What about in Genesis when God meets Abraham, and he chooses a man who is an idol worshiper, who's married to an idol worshiper, whose parents and in-laws are all idol worshipers in a land of idol worshipers, and he calls Abraham or Abram out and tells him, I, I'm God, the real God, the living God, walk before me. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses reminds the people that God's choice of them, which happened long before the rescue of Egypt, from Egypt, it had nothing to do with how special they were. So he says this in Deuteronomy 7, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number Than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which you swore to your fathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There's a purpose for his choosing them, it's so good. Genesis 22, God says to Abram, A number of things in this great covenant. But one of the things he says is all the nations will be blessed. All the families of the earth through your seed. Singular. And Paul takes that up in the book of Galatians and explains. And Peter preaches it in in Acts chapter 3. The seed. The offspring of Abraham. Not just all the Jews. Not even just the believing Jews. But the Messiah has come. 
and all the world is now impacted. Galatians 3, Paul says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, many offspring, but rather to one, and to your seed, he says, that is Christ. So they've been chosen. They've been chosen for a purpose. They've been graciously chosen. Nothing about them particularly attractive. And they've been rescued. But you could look further. Between Exodus 15, where they sing the song of this great rescue, and Exodus 20, where God meets with them through Moses and gives them the law and says, verse 2, I'm the God that rescued you. There is more rescue that occurs. It's not just the choices in the past. It's not just from Egypt. God's rescuing Israel did not end at the Red Sea. In chapter 15, three days, Exodus 15, at the end of the chapter that we read from, we didn't read all the way to the end, but at the end, three days after being rescued, after watching Pharaoh's army washed down the stream, they are traveling through this wilderness area and they can't find water that they can drink. It's very, the water they find is bitter. It's not drinkable. And so they complain. And God has Moses throw a stick into this water and God miraculously makes it water that is drinkable and the hundreds of thousands drink and and they're satisfied. Chapter 16, next thing we read, a month and a half, 45 days, since Egypt is drowned, they complain because they feel that it's too hard to find food in the wilderness. And they say things like this. We wish God had just killed us, not the Egyptians. We wish God himself had killed us. Back when he was killing the Egyptians, back when people were dying in the, in the plagues, well, we wish God would have killed us too because at least when we were in Egypt, we had pots full of food. And God hears this complaining and he provides food, meat and manna. Chapter 17, the very next chapter, God is guiding them, and he guides them to a place. Again, there's a lack of water, and they blame Moses again, and they quarrel and complain against their God, and God miraculously gives them water enough to drink for the whole nation from a rock. Next, chapter 17, the nation of the Amalekites see the Jews traveling, this ragtag group of slaves that have escaped, and they decide that, That's easy pickings, and they go to war against the Israelites, and God gives aid to the Israelites, Joshua, who leads them into battle, and they conquer the Amalekites. And God becomes the permanent enemy of the Amalekites and wipes them out eventually. The rescue is ongoing. So when God says in chapter 19... They can think back on all the ways he's provided, all the ways he's rescued, all the ways he's protected. And then he says to them, I'm the one that has been rescuing you from Egypt, from everything. So this is what I require. Now, Christian, what does that have to do with us? As I mentioned, these are universal principles. None of them are limited to old covenant relationship. Who commands you? Follow me. 
the one who walked in the path of obedience. All the fullness of the I am, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord who met Moses on Sinai has united himself to our humanity and has become your kinsman, your relative, so to speak. And as the mediator of the brokenhearted, believing sinner, he mediates for a people and he becomes the curse for them. He removes the offense between you and God by becoming the one that God treats as offensive on the cross. And not just that, but he renews your nature. He places his spirit within you. United to him, all that he has done as a redeemer impacts you. The old you is dead, Paul says. A new you is alive. So you don't have to offer this body, this intellect, you know, the senses. You don't have to offer this as instruments of unrighteousness ever again. His rescue of you was not just at the cross. We know what Paul says. He loved you before creation. He chose you for a purpose like Israel. Luke 1, Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad, when he's born, says that God has sent the Messiah to grant us that while being rescued from the hand of our enemies, we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then later, Paul writes and says this in chapter 2 of Ephesians. When you were dead, when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, why? He might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. A rescue is still continuing. So when you walk up to the Ten Commandments, you're not walking up to a, a bribe or a ladder, but you are walking up to a God that you love who has rescued you and is rescuing you and promises to continue rescuing you. And, and it's connected now to his reputation. So Paul can write in Romans 5 and say that we hope in the glory of God. That is, God will glorify himself. God will rule over all things. Everything's going to be put under the feet of Christ. And that brings the believer great hope. Why? Because in that great conquering rule of Christ, your perfecting is included. You will be made like Christ. You will be enabled to put sin to death and to grow. And when we all see Christ together, as he is glorified, his church is glorified. The, the process is complete. So knowing that that is coming and that your rescue is attached to his honor, well, you can glory in that. Every believer in Christ is not just promised a supply from Christ. You can say, Christ is my supply. You can say things the Jew could not have dared to say. You can say, the I am is my kinsman. The I am is my supply, is my life. I can never be separated from the I am. So when you approach the Ten Commandments, whatever command comes, 
You can do it for love. Does the New Testament support that? Well, just think of Paul rescued from some of the worst sins possible. I don't mean adultery and murder and theft. I mean using religion as a screen for, you know, doing what he wanted to do, making God all about him, even to the point of hunting Christians down. In 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says this, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That is Paul after rescue from a spiritual Egypt. And he looks at Christ and says, that love that he has for me, it compels me. Which is why he could say a few verses earlier, therefore we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. Not just obeying. Okay, fine, I'll keep your law. Oh, I am, I'm an ambitious man. I have one overriding purpose. I have one ambition, not many, one. And my one ambition, which kind of pulls every part of my life, every resource, all the energy of my mind and soul and heart and body, which bends everything toward a certain goal. My ambition is this, to please him. J.C. Ryle wrote this about this zeal, this desire to please God. He writes this, zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God, to do his will and to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. This desire is so strong that it impels a man to make any sacrifice, to go through any trouble, to suffer, to work, to labor, to toil, even to die, if only he can please God and honor Christ. A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. He sees only one thing. He cares for only one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. So when we come to the law, and we read that opening line and we realize that's the entrance that all of us have to walk through so that we don't become Pharisees and we don't become antinomians. So that we understand the purpose of the law. Are you like Paul, having been saved, having been purchased? Do you say, it is now my new ambition just to live for his pleasure? Or as Paul says, Whatever my hand finds to do, to do it with all my might as unto the Lord. John Newton, in the 1800s, Newton, pastoring in the little country town of Olney, England, uh, in the pastor's house, the manse or the parsonage, which, you know, belonged to the church, not to Newton, um, there is a room in that house that it has a it's the study and it has a big fireplace and above the fireplace Newton had um, a poor uh, a, a picture painted it, it was artwork lettering he had two verses painted and then he mounted the artist's work above the fireplace by the way he didn't ask permission of the 
deacons of the church, could he do this? And so when, you know, the church has to write a check for this artwork that goes above the fireplace, they were highly incensed that he didn't get their permission. So there's a lesson there, but it's not the important one. Here's the important one. Two verses Newton wrote above his fireplace. Isaiah 43, verse 4. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Every Christian could write that. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored. I have loved you. Second verse. But you shall remember, Deuteronomy 15, 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. New mercies every morning. We talk about that. It's a great verse. Every new mercy is just a new reason for us to turn to God and say, God, if you will give me grace, I want to know your will. I want to do your will. I want to please him who gave himself for me. Well, may God make us that kind of church. Well, let's pray. Our God, we pray that we will be a people who build their lives on a rock. The rock of Christ's great redeeming work. The rock that produces obedience in your people. Happy, wholehearted. We ask it in his name. Amen.